Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, Sunridge. It is good to be with you today. Uh, my name is Danny Sugimoto. I serve here as the middle school pastor. Uh, thank you for joining us in worship this morning. Whether you're a guest visiting here, whether in person or online, or if you've been attending our church for decades, uh, it, it is a privilege that you would choose to worship with us today. And as you've just heard Nate read, uh, our passage of scripture this morning might make us a little bit uh, uncomfortable. Today I have the burden, uh, privilege, uh, responsibility of talking through what Peter has written here regarding submission to authority, particularly that of the government. Uh, when Britt first mentioned that he wanted me to teach this series, I was like, okay, cool. We were in the workroom where people print things, and uh, I believe I was cutting some stuff for Quest. And I was like, yeah, I can totally do that. I'm, I'm free in uh, September, October. He goes, okay, cool. How would you feel about uh, teaching on the government? Uh, and I laughed in his face because I thought it was a joke. Uh, it wasn't. He was serious. Uh, and so I think, you know, Britt either really trusts me or he's actively seeking to get rid of me. Um, <laughs> But in all honesty, it is a privilege to be here and to teach and share what Peter has written uh, and how it relates to us several thousands of years later. And so this morning, we're just going to kick things off the same way that we have been for the past couple of weeks. Uh, go ahead and turn to someone sitting near you, hopefully uh, somebody that you don't know, and then just tell them your favorite political party. Uh, don't actually do that, please. Uh, some of you are sweating, and I'm like, like saying that made me feel really icky, actually. Uh, no, uh, this one's real. Turn to someone next to you and say to them, uh, no matter what, I'm here for you. That's real. Say it. <laughs> Aw, that's like sweet, right? Okay, let's, let's begin. Uh, well, actually, we're not going to begin here with chapter 2, verse 13. We're actually going to jump back earlier in the letter because it, it makes a lot of sense for us to kind of recap what Peter has done, what he has set up, and where that has taken us into this argument. So uh, in chapter 1, starting in verse 13, Peter is establishing a new identity for these Christians in Asia Minor. As non-Jewish people, they were outside of the original promises made by God to the Hebrews in the Old Testament. And so what Peter does is reframe their perspective and reframe their understanding of themselves, and he brings them into this new family that Jesus has established. Uh, well, actually, he's not so much bringing them in as he's reminding them, making them aware of the fact that God has already uh, adopted them. They have this new adoptive state, which is the heart behind chapter 1, verse 9, where Peter calls these Gentiles a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's own people. Peter is reminding them of their new identity, that they're part of this new family, and as a part of this new family, that means that there's going to be a new standard for how they live their lives. 
Which then takes us to verse uh, 11 and 12, which Britt taught last week. And here, Peter draws a further distinction between these Christian churches in Asia Minor and the communities and the cultures in which they find themselves. It says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. By addressing them as aliens and exiles, sojourners, refugees, Peter is again highlighting this brand new identity, this world that they live in, this world that they're operating in. It's not their true home. They're simply people visiting from some other place. They're visiting another country. They're visiting somebody else's household. And as such, they are supposed to conduct themselves with honor. And since we know that this is a circular letter, a letter that would have been passed around from church to church within Asia Minor, we can kind of view what Peter writes here as a sort of universal command. In essence, Peter is saying that Christians are meant to do things differently. We're meant to do things differently, to be different people. See, in the presence of this persecution that Peter brings up in verse 12, these false accusations, uh, Christians are supposed to act in a way that is honorable and good. By doing so, by acting in this manner that is so vastly different than what we might expect, Peter is suggesting that God will be glorified. The actions of the Christians here on this earth have a direct impact with how God is perceived by the others around them. So by choosing to not resist persecution, by choosing to not seek revenge or retaliation, to not hit these folks with, I know you are, but what am I? Uh, By not doing any of that, Christians are, are carving a unique pathway to bring glory and to bring honor to God, which is great. It's fantastic. This type of teaching isn't new. It's standard fare for the Christian worldview. Peter demonstrates how our behaviors can leave an impression on people, and we need to be aware of this because we spend every single day with other people right? It's not just you by yourself isolated from the world. We operate in and out of places of business, networking with others across the spectrum of faith and religion, standing in line with them as we order our coffee or or sharing open offices with them, communicating with them on Slack and Microsoft Teams or however our teams uh, communicate. And so, of course, Peter would want his readers, want to communicate to them that they should be able to control themselves. And that we should know how to act with dignity when we are with other people. That's what he's set up here. But then he takes everything a step further and leads us into our passage this morning. Verse 13 reads, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Submit yourselves to every human authority. It's a command as straightforward as they come. And I can imagine his readers, much like many of us are today, going, what about, wait, hold on. It can't be that simple, right? But Peter kind of makes it that simple. Peter doesn't offer space for any whatabouts. He doesn't offer conditions or qualifiers. He doesn't offer a way for us to kind of sidestep this responsibility and this obligation. Submit yourselves to human authority, whether to the emperor, the one at the top of the chain, or to those whom he sends to rule over you. What Peter writes here, again, it's not unique. 
It's not necessarily an original thought from him. He's, he's not some fringe character writing something that isn't affirmed elsewhere in the New Testament because his words are reminiscent of what Paul writes in Romans. Chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And then again, uh, in the letter to Titus, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Peter isn't injecting some new thought concept. He's continuing a tradition of Christianity by saying to accept authority, accept the authority that exists above each and every single one of us. But what makes this remarkable isn't the novelty of it. What makes this command uncomfortable uh, and slightly scandalous is the person at the time who was currently ruling the empire, a man named Nero. Nero comes from a family of emperors, like a family. There is a long line of people who have ruled over that he extends from. He's the great-great-grandson of Caesar Augustus. His uncle is Caligula, who was emperor at the time of Nero's birth. His great-uncle Claudius would eventually take over the throne from Caligula and then go on to marry Nero's mom. His lineage, his family history is one of, of authority. It's one of power. It's, it's of corruption and scandal and the, re the relentless pursuit of one's own goals no matter what the cost. And then at 16 years old, 16 years old, Claudius dies, was most likely murdered, assassinated, and Nero takes the throne. And at first, things are going really well for this 16-year-old. Like, can you imagine being 16 and running a country? I cannot. Uh, so at first, he's like crushing it. People like him. He's been really successful. Uh, he's doing a great job. But over time, as what happens to many people in authority positions, he starts to become paranoid. He starts to become frantic. He loses trust in the circle of people that are closest to him. He starts to lash out at his allies and eventually goes on to organize the murder of his own mother because she opposed an extramarital affair that he was having. Things start really well for him, and then he transitions into this brutal emperor. And not only was he a ruthless emperor, he also hated Christians. It's under this rule that all these things are happening. It is under this rule that some of the first widespread persecutions of Christians ever took place. And I'm sure that when Peter is writing this letter around 62 AD, just a couple years before the Great Fire, well, there are rumblings of Nero's distaste and distrust of Christians. Those rumors are spreading rapidly because just a few years later, Nero would start this fire and launch an extreme campaign to attempt to extinguish the Christian faith. But we're not there just yet. Instead, these conflicts, these feelings of persecution that are being felt by these Christians, they're a lot more subtle. They're not direct, open-air attacks like we often think of persecution. They're more uh, nuanced. This persecution shows itself in the form of interpersonal conflict, rejection, prejudice, a sense of distrust, microaggressions in their various forms, and that is the sensation that is boiling underneath the surface as Peter calls his readers to be obedient. Their resistance towards their religious beliefs is what is driving, uh, this resistance rather, is what's driving Peter's command here, this command to be submissive, to be accepting of human authority, especially when it comes from the top. And what's more, 
Peter asks all of his readers, all of these churches in Asia Minor, to do this for the Lord's sake. Translated literally, it is through the Lord. It is for Christ's sake that they are to submit to human authorities. Again, because of their status, because of their position as foreigners and refugees, people visiting somewhere else, because this isn't their home, because they have a new identity and a new family. It's as an outpouring of their faith that these Christians, whenever they come up against persecution, whenever they come up against conflict and slander, even if it comes from the top, they must choose over and over again to lower themselves and to stoop down. It is an act of service to God. It is a byproduct of a new identity, of being a part of a new tribe, of having a new family. Christians are to do what no one anticipates. Because that's what this is, right? It's what no one could ever anticipate. There are these people in their communities who are taking issue with the Christian church. And rather than get even, Peter tells his followers, tells these churches in Asia Minor, rather than get even, it is time for you to start evangelizing and to evangelize through your works. Rather than get mad, it is time for you to give more to go lower still and to leave the world that you find yourself living in, to leave your communities better than you found it. It's like that really famous St. Francis of Assisi quote. They are to preach the gospel with their lives and with their acts of service and their humility, even when they're staring into the unknown. The quarrels and the conflicts that these particular Christians are experiencing exist because of how different they are because they're not like everyone else. It's happening because they are making the choice to stand out from the crowd. They are choosing to live different lives, like cities on hilltops. And to get all of these persecutions, all of these conflicts, to get everything to stop, it would be easy. Just blend in. Stop doing the things that you're doing. Just join in with the crowd. Fall back in line. Give up the differences that are directing others towards God. But to do so is an act of disobedience. To do so would be to neglect the call to follow after Jesus. To do so would forsake their influence on the world. Rather than give in, Peter challenges them to do good, to not grow bitter, to not give up on their neighbors, to continue to pour themselves out, knowing that their lives are an example of the grace the faithfulness, the goodness, and the love and hope that God extends to all people. They are called to remember that their actions directly impact the way that their communities look at, view, understand, and come to know who God is. As foreigners and refugees, they're not called to stir up conflict in this other space. They are called to live quiet lives, doing good, shaping the next generation of Christians that will come up after them. It's not a call to an arms race. It's not a call to steal themselves for an uprising. It's not a command to join a local militia or barricade the streets like some ancient production of Les Mis. It's not a call to oust the emperor or pack the government with people who view things the same way that they do. It is a call to follow in the footsteps of their Savior to lower themselves, to live like Jesus, to lay everything down, even when it's hard, even when it hurts, and even when it might cost them everything. It is for the Lord's sake that they continue to model goodness and the faith 
face of prejudice, for it is God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. I know what some of you might be thinking now, because I thought it the whole time I was writing this. That's good. That's great. Awesome. But what about those times? What about those times when uh, oppression comes down from the top? What about those times when leaders decide to act in sin and it's clear? What do we do then? Do we just lay down? Do we blindly obey? Do we turn on our neighbors if they ask us to? Do we become the oppressors if they ask us to? And those are valid things to consider. I mean, a quick summary of history tells us that political leaders, people in charge, don't always have the best intentions, the interests of the people at their heart. A quick survey through history shows us that policies can be rooted in greed, in hate, in stereotypes. So what do we do then? Do we just submit? Do we just give in? How can we ever progress as a people group if we simply accept the status quo? What about protesting? When am I allowed to do that? I have a right to do that. When is that allowed? When do I get to speak up and protect my freedoms? When do I get to voice my concern about my own liberties and the liberties of my children and my family and my family's lives? And if you're hoping to find an answer to those questions, I'm sorry. I don't have it for you. I don't have an answer for you. I can't tell you with any certainty how Peter might direct us, living thousands of years removed from his own time on earth, living in a completely different form of government, with different, completely different sets of rules and cultural expectations and collective history, a different process. I don't know how he would direct us today. And so if you came here looking this morning for the perfect way to end that ongoing conversation, the one you've been having with your aunt, or your coworker, or your spouse, or your neighbor, if you're looking to find a way to end that, I think you're looking for the wrong thing. Because what Peter writes here, it's not meant to go inside of the big book of gotcha. Those verses that you can just pull out of your pocket whenever you want to end a conversation and just say, boom, there it is. The Bible said it, done, we're over. Peter's not building up that book. Peter is trying to take us somewhere else. Because what he writes here, it's not the end of the conversation. He's not closing the book, slamming the door, saying, we've talked about it, do your job, submit, we're done. This is the beginning of the conversation. He's opening up a whole new chapter of his letter. Because what he talks about here, when he discusses submission, it kicks off this, this progressive concept, these new ideas for the people at the time. It's revolutionary. What Peter sows here is going to be seen throughout the rest of this series that we're in. And so I don't even think the things we've talked about so far this morning are the most important aspect of this passage of Scripture. I think they're a stepping stone to get us to think about what's next. I don't play basketball, but I've watched enough of it to know that it's like a jab step, just a little, a little shuffle to catch you off guard to bring your guard down so that Peter can subvert your expectations, to see how you're going to move so that he can take you somewhere else. And that's what takes us into verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 
Earlier in verse 16, Peter teaches that his audience shouldn't use the freedom they have been gifted by God as a cover-up for evil. Don't live in a way that is selfish, but then hide behind your faith in the hopes that other people will just view it as being normal. And this thought continues in that same vein. Don't allow your Christian faith, the certainty that you might hold about the end of all things, where you are going when you die, don't allow that certainty to trip you up and and cause you to disrespect other people, show honor to everyone, literally all men, all people on earth here are worthy of honor and respect. And that's regardless of political differences. That's regardless of how or what you believe when it comes to your faith. That is regardless of whether or not they identify as pro-life or pro-choice or regardless of if you think they have earned your respect. Peter's command is short. Honor everyone. It's difficult for us to hear because, again, his audience will immediately think about all those people in the streets who have been harassing them. They'll remember the people who have refused to serve them in the marketplaces. They'll think of the harsh words, the gross generalizations, and the outright lies spoken by the people who live right down the street from them. But Peter calls these Christians to show honor and respect to all people. As people made in the image of God, molded with the imagio Dei, we are deserving of honor, especially if you call yourself a Christian. And having to show this honor and and display it daily means that you will eventually uh, develop care for your community. Christians are called to continue to do good, to continue to care, to continue to show respect for others. And it will be hard. It will be difficult to sit across from people, to come face to face with whatever things they decide in the conversation to sling at you. But what's the alternative? Dismissing them outright? Shutting people down? Canceling them? Do we choose to just forget that our beliefs don't just show up out of nowhere? Do we choose to forget that there is often generational trauma steering people down their paths? When you care for your community, when you hold honor for someone else, you just learn to ask good questions. You learn to pay attention. Why are our conversations always like this? What led you to that conclusion? Can you tell me about your childhood? Can you tell me about your own experience? How has this helped to shape you? When you hold honor for people, you can separate them from their point of view. They're not whatever labels you might attach to them, like warning signs letting you know what parts of the conversation to avoid while you're speaking to them. They're a whole person, stamped with the image of God worthy of honor, respect, and your care. But Peter doesn't stop there. He challenges his readers to love the brotherhood. And he pulls in this language of family. And in fact, the word used here uh, for love is a form of the word agape, unconditional love. And I think it's interesting that Peter uses the word brotherhood here instead of uh, a general believer's. I think that in terms of crafting a narrative, he's again taking us back to chapter one where he spelled out all the different ways that these Asia Minor Christians have been adopted into a new family, how they've been given a new identity. And so he's reminding them again of these promises. But as we move deeper in the relationship, the brotherhood, this family of believers, uh, there's a need for even more honor towards each other. 
There's a need for more respect for one another because families tend to annoy each other sometimes. If you ask any middle school student about their issues, I'm not going to put Nate on the spot right now, uh, but if you ask any middle school student about their issues, the things that frustrate them in their lives, somewhere near the top five is probably a sibling or a parent, someone within their family. And that's because we spend so much time with our families. We're so different yet so similar. We can disagree on any number of topics. But if the Christian faith is going to continue on, if it's going to be this family of believers that survives whatever comes at it, then we need to learn to let our love hold space. And I think Peter speaks this, writes this rather, from his own experience. Because let's just remember who he is. He's a disciple of Jesus. He's one of the few people to ever walked alongside of Jesus while he was here on earth. When Jesus walked out on the water and the disciples were terrified and they thought it was a ghost, it was Peter who said, Lord, if it is you, if that's you on the water, let me do the thing that you are doing. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? It was Peter who responded with this wild, radical idea that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God coming to save the world. See, the nature of the Christian faith, the nature of these churches that Paul is writing to is that there are going to be so many differences. There are going to be different approaches, different ideas, and some will seem archaic, and some will seem progressive, and some will just seem like common sense. But when it comes to people, Peter says there is no difference. Love them. Hold space for them at the table. Welcome other Christians regardless of how well their beliefs do or do not align with your own. When you love someone, you give them their own agency. You give them their own ability to make their own uh, conclusions, to make their own decisions, and you give up your desire for control. You hold space for them to exist whether or not that looks like you. You have to ask yourself the question, are you actually okay with their ability to come to different conclusions? Or are you going to regulate their every action and impose your own beliefs on them? Because imposing thoughts, that doesn't sound necessarily like love. And that's the same system that happens within the family unit. Because healthy families don't cast judgment on one another. Healthy families don't force out the members who have different thoughts. If you don't like the same baseball team, you don't exile your sibling to the family room. Families are safe spaces, safe havens for people to exist freely. The family unit is a place where people can be free to eat together, free to laugh together, free to experience new life Together, And so when we love the family of believers, we invest in each other, perhaps by taking this wildly insane step and joining a life group, perhaps by volunteering in some ministry that you never thought you'd be a part of. When we hold space for one another, it is a way of communicating to them, no matter what, I'm here for you. I'm here with you. And then Peter moves another layer in, one step further. Fear God, the deepest, most intimate layer of these relationships so far. And as we have moved further in, the language has just gotten more and more intense. Honor, love, and now fear. But this isn't fear as in I'm scared or I'm terrified, I'm petrified. This is fear as in a sense of awe, a sense of wonder. 
a sense of reverence. When we fear God, we hold this high, high, extreme respect for the nature and the character of God. And that energy propels us outwards. Because when we revere God, when we remember the promises made for us, the way that God has invited us, the way that God has included us, even when we weren't worthy, that takes us somewhere else. And when we understand these things, our only choice is to put our reverence into action. We put our reverence into action. We can't help but take this new hope that God has given to us, revealed to us, and turn it into love for our fellow believers. We can't help but take this new identity that has been revealed to us and see the hope and the new life inside the eyes of every person that we interact with. We cannot help but understand that there's a new hierarchy and God alone sits at the top so no power from some emperor could ever stop us. No misdeed or harsh words from a neighbor could ever thwart our growth and our development. No weapon formed against us should ever prosper. And so we take that energy And we put it into love because it has to become more than just talk on our lips. We have to put our reverence into action because our faith has to become more than just gatekeeping and saying, you're in, you're out, move along. Because paying lip service to the Christian faith is so easy. It is remarkably easy to sit on the sidelines. You come to a building, you sit in a chair, someone talks, you can go home, say, yay me, check, awesome. It's the same way that students can enter into a classroom, sit with a teacher for an extended period of time, and walk out the door having learned nothing. It is remarkably easy to just turn it off. But it's one thing to proclaim your faith in God, your love for God, your devotion to God, and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I would identify as that. And it's an entirely different thing to actively pursue that faith and to allow it to trickle into all the other areas of your lives. And and this isn't even a new problem for Christians. In Matthew 15, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, speaking to these religious leaders at the time, quotes Isaiah, a book written hundreds of years earlier. And he says this, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings have become merely human rules. When we lose our fear for God, we end up focusing on rules. When we lose our fear of God, we forget that there's work to be done. We lose the spark that presses us forward. And so Peter is drawing us out. He's offering us a new chance. He's taking us back to the root, refreshing the memories of the new family so that we can do and remember all the things God has already done for us so that we can move into our communities and do good in order to care for each other. And then by doing so, by caring for people, by loving the brotherhood, we can turn our cities into little glimpses of heaven because we have chosen to hold respect for our neighbors, because we've chosen to hold respect for our fellow Christians, because we have chosen to hold respect for our God and respect for our emperors, because that's how Peter wraps this section up. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. The same respect that you show for that couple, a couple houses down from you, should also be shown for your commander-in-chief. Because you're the same. I mean, let's just look at this hierarchy 
that Peter has developed for us. If you rank it in terms of intensity of language, you have fear God at the top. And then you have love the family towards the middle and then honor everyone just beneath that. And right next to that, honor the emperor. This supposed supreme authority from way back in verse 13 is actually on the same level as everyone else. And then around the time that Peter is writing this, there's actually a rise in this practice of emperor worship where people would make ritual sacrifices on behalf of the emperor, where the emperor was treated as if he were a descendant from God or the actual incarnation of God. And so Peter, by writing this, by saying honor the emperor, by putting him on the same level as everyone else, he's undercutting this idea and saying he's just like everyone else. He's just another guy. He's just another person stamped with the image of God and inherently worthy of honor and respect. And at times, it is going to be easier to honor and respect the person sitting at the highest seat of government. But the real measurement of how good of a job we are doing is summed up in one question. Does your honor cross the aisle? Does your honor cross the aisle? And at this point, I'd like to invite the band back to the stage. Does your honor cross the aisle? Is your honor present in all the ways that you talk about whomever it is that happens to be running the show? Or is it only there when they think exactly like you do? Are the things that you're posting online serving to only cut others down? Are, are your sources of news just searching for whatever that next scandal is? Or have you built yourself an echo chamber? I can tell you without a doubt, I've been guilty of this. I've been guilty of letting my anger go, letting my pride take over and lead me to a place where I think that I'm the one seated at the top of the hierarchy. A place where I'm ranting frantically like some sort of mad king where I think I get to dictate who's in and who's out, which people are worthy of respect, but that is not my role. It's not yours either. That seat is reserved for God alone. And our behaving like that only serves to preach a different kind of gospel. It's a gospel of retribution. It's a system of cutting words, of, of harsh and sharp insults. It's a system of fear, of being wrong, a system that worships certainty. And that is not the true gospel. That is not the good news of Jesus Christ. That is not the truth that Jesus has come to set us free. This idea that the Son of God has chosen to intercede on our behalf so that we might have new life, that we might have new hope. This idea that God is sitting on the throne, drawing us near so that we can be sent out in order to extend an invitation to anyone willing to bear witness. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what Peter is trying to center our focus on here. The gospel of hope is where Peter is trying to lead us as new citizens of a different kind of kingdom. This good news for all creation is what is at the heart of this section. And it's what will carry us through to the end of this letter. And it's a gospel you can preach with your words. Or it's a gospel you can live. One where you live a good life for the Lord's sake. 
where you use your good works as a beacon to point others towards Jesus, where you approach politics and differences of opinion in a way that says that you show honor and love to whomever it is that you speak with, where you avoid the low-hanging fruit and the easy jabs because you see the image of God in that person. For the Lord's sake, translated literally through the Lord, diaton kurion. It's the only way that we will ever succeed, the only way that we will ever overcome our differences of opinion or perspective and all the things that only wish to drive wedges between our relationships. It is through the Lord, the one seated on the throne, the only one in that position. It's only through him that we can even begin to understand the depth of the call to fear God, to love the family of believers and to honor everyone. We stand, lift your voices in worship. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.